Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Parashat Truma. Let's talk about the parasha itself. Very dramatic opening. Moshe says to the uh, people at the instruction of God, Vayikhuli Truma. Take for me a Truma, commonly translated as an offering. May it call Ish Asher Yidbenu Libo. In other words, take a, uh, an offering, a free will offering from everyone who is moved by his heart to give. So we see over here the first crowdfunding in history, also the only recorded crowdfunding in the Jewish world, which was overfunded, where they actually had to go back and say, enough, we have more than we need, unheard of, and I presume most fundraisers would be dreaming of such a situation. Interesting ideas over here that emerge. First of all, the fundraising takes place before the people are told what it's about. They're just told to give a truma. That's the act of faith. You give because you know it's going to be put to good purpose, and so on. There are other things over here that come out quite sharply. Vayikhuli truma, take for me a, a, a truma. It should say, give me a truma. Why take from me? And there are many interpretations. The one that I think resonates the best is that, in fact, when you have money earmarked for tzedakah, it's not yours. It's actually already somebody else's. You're just the trustee of the asset for the third-party beneficiary. And um, therefore, you're not really giving anything. You're just taking something that's already earmarked and that doesn't really belong to you and giving it to its rightful owner or a more appropriate owner. The rabbis explain that, in fact, when you take a truma, what you're doing is taking it to yourself. You're enriching yourself, your soul, your persona, by giving a truma. And truma is generally trans uh, translated as an offering. But in fact, the word truma comes from the word laharim, to lift up, as we know from Ramat Beit Shemesh and Ramot and so on. It's to lift, to elevate. And so over here we see the same concept that when you give someone a gift, it elevates you, the giver. That's why they use the word truma. And how beautifully it says, Asher yid benu libo, which his heart inspires him to give generously. Take uh, my truma. And the purpose of these trumot, these gifts, is to build the Mishkan, the traveling sanctuary. In the eighth sentence, it says, mikdash They shall build for me a mikdash, and I will live in them, or with them, or amongst them. Now, you would think that the sentence would say, they will build me a Mishkan, and I will live in it. But it doesn't. It says, you build us Mishkan and I will live in them, the builders, the donors of this structure. What a wonderful idea that when we give towards the construction of a holy project, God rests in each of us and not in the building itself. Over here, we see a direct reference to the fact that the Mishkan is in fact the precursor to the Beit HaMikdash by the specific reference. And with the Beit HaMikdash gone, we also see that the Beit HaMikdash now reflects itself in the Mikdash Ma'at, in the Jewish home, which has become for, uh, for, for the Jewish people, the small Beit HaMikdash. And the similarities also are very interesting. The two Chanot on the Friday night are the two showbreads in the Beit HaMikdash and in the Mishkan. I put salt on the table, which is a, a, a remnant or a reminder of the Beit HaMikdash and the sacrifices. We wash our hands before we uh, eat uh, and so on. In addition, um, the uh, staves, the poles 
that are attached in the building of the Beit HaMikdash are tied to the base wood pieces, uh, something called a tabat, which means a ring. And the, the word tabat uh, be very familiar to everybody because it's the, it's the statement we make when we get married. It's the wedding ring, but tabat zu, with this bond, with this connection. And so the, the, the bond of the, of the structure of the, of the Beit HaMikdash and the Mishkan are directly connected with the wedding ceremony and the building of a Bayit Ne'eman Israel. The lighting of the Hanukkah candles, which we do in the Jewish home or really outside the door of the Jewish home, outside the window perhaps, uh, is also a uh, reflection directly to the uh, burning of the oil in the candles in the Beit HaMikdash. And the Ramban brings down many similarities between the Mishkan and Har Sinai, upon which God gave the Torah. As soon as the Mishkan is built, God begins to give more laws and ordinances to Moshe right there in the Mishkan between the Kruvim. And so we see that link, also the clouds of glory, many, many similarities. Mishkan was a portable structure, as I said. And so we learn the idea that God isn't in any one location, but God is wherever we move ourselves too. As the, um, the uh, rabbi, I believe it was Kotzka Rebbe said, they asked him, where is God? And his answer was, wherever you let him in. And we see it here quite clearly. The staves, which are the poles to carry the Mishkan, could never be removed from the structure. They always had to be inserted, which means always ready to be on the move. That is the condition of the Jewish people. It was then and it is now. The staves have to always be in place because we never know where we will end up and we need to make sure that we take our values, our Torah, the Mishkan with us. Any careful reading of the Parsha will reflect a direct connection to Gun Eden and a, an attempt to recreate in some way the Gun Eden experience on earth. Uh, look at the commonalities, the Shrubim, the Cherubs, uh, and the Kruvim, the, the Cherubs, and the uh, Menorah itself, which has to be carved from a single piece of gold and in many ways is thought Kabbalistically to represent the, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, the fruits that are carved into the woodwork are directly connected with the fruits in the Garden of Eden as well. It is as if God made a small place uh, in the cosmos for human beings to live in perfection in the Garden of Eden. And human beings in a some small way reciprocate that by carving out a small place uh, in our world for God to uh, be symbolically most present and uh, most concentrated. The fascinating point is that we see throughout, we have wood with gold on the inside and gold on the outside. And the question might be, you know, why did God want, why was the instruction to build a structure that has in multiple places, gold on the outside, gold on the inside and wood in between. Now, now of course, you know, no one's buying cheap jewelry over here, gold plated jewelry or silver plated jewelry, something much more profound. And I want to suggest two ideas. Number one, holiness must take place both, in, both inside the person and outside. We all know people where the holiness is on the outside and the inside isn't. So the idea is both the outside and the inside have to be at a high level of Kedusha. But I think more profoundly, and one of the secrets I think of Jewish theology and Jewish survival, 
is that combining gold and wood really combines the never-changing with the ever-changing. So the gold is inert. It doesn't decay. It doesn't rot. It always stays perfect. Uh, the wood, on the other hand, is organic matter. It grows, it evolves, it sprouts, it goes through seasons, it dies, and so on. It's organic matter. And that combination of a core set of values that stays immutable throughout, and then interpretation and application, which reapplies in different circumstances within the same construct, within the same framework, that combination, I think, is at the heart of Jewish survival. I think the other big idea of this week's parsha is that we are a people of hope and optimism. There's a medrash that says that the wood that was used to build the Mishkan, which of course is problematic, where did they get wood in the middle of the desert? Uh, the medrash says that when Abraham was going down to Egypt, he planted trees uh, along the way, and in Beersheba those were used for shade for the guests. When Jacob went down to Egypt, they took those trees, they took the saplings from those trees down with them, and planted them in Egypt and saw them every day, always knowing that there would come a time when those trees would be taken back with them to fulfill their sacred purpose, and that those trees would become the wood that would be used for the, for the Mishkan and ultimately for the Bad Amikdash. So we're an ever-hopeful people, an ever-optimistic people filled with positive faith, and I think it's evidenced by that, the idea that the Medrash tells us Abraham knew that the people would be in Egypt, that they would need wood, they would need to be able to see the trees to keep their spirits and their optimism alive, that they would use the wood for the most sacred purpose. And uh, with that, I wish everybody a Shabbat Shalom 